The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. All right, everybody, welcome back to episode 349. I'm here with uh, Chris Holland right now. Chris, how's it going? Going great. And you'll, you'll see as you listen to this episode, we've got uh, um, some extra features in this episode, and that's why Chris is with us, because Chris, you're the you're the tech expert on this show, right? Well, <laughs> sure. A jack of all <laughs> trades, a master of none, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Chris, today it's pretty exciting. We've got um, Drew Tuberville, who's actually called in, and we're kind of doing call in and in quotes there. He he recorded an essential of a youth room for us, and he'll share that today. Um, so it's pretty cool to, to have somebody. And, and we hope, Chris, as we've talked, maybe one day being able to have, you know, where people can actually call in live or, or something along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. But who knows? That might not be possible, right? I don't know. Uh, the, the advancements in technology, John, I think you can, yeah. you can make it work. Yeah. We'll see. Um, but right now, let, let me play uh, Drew's Essential, and uh, then we'll get to technically speaking in just in just a minute. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Drew Turberville. I'm the student pastor at River Oaks Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, good to be with you guys today. Uh, when we're thinking about essentials for youth rooms or youth spaces uh, a couple of them come to mind Uh, the first one is some form of snack snackage whatever you want to call it food Um, and we found that this has been beneficial for our group uh, because many of them are involved in extracurriculars that carry on well after school is over Uh, so they're coming to the church building um, right after school and they're hungry Uh, and so if you've tried teaching hungry students, uh, you know that they're not really focused and that they're really kind of distracted. So, uh, you know, just providing some kind of snack, uh, you know, whether that's just chips or ice cream or just something to let them know, hey, we love you. Uh, We're glad you're here. We want to take care of you. Here's something really fun uh, for you guys to eat and hang out. And, you know, gathering around a meal or get, you know, students love eating together and talking together. So uh, that's been something really good for us. and another thing uh, for essentials for youth rooms, I would argue, would be uh, adults. Um, you know, I've always been a big fan and a big proponent of having adults, you know, young professionals, um, youth parents, elders uh, come to the youth room and be around our students. Uh, you know, I, I want them to have other relationships with adults. Uh, other than me in the church, uh, more people that can speak into their lives, more relationships that they can have, you know, being comfortable with the elders on the session. Uh, one thing that we've done is have an elder of the month. And so during session meetings, I'll send out a list and an elder will sign up for a month. And on the first Wednesday night of that month, uh, he will come and uh, give his testimony Um and just give a little charge to the students just so that they can put a face with the name uh, and it kind of humanizes the session uh, for our students so uh, having adults in your youth room i think is a big um, 
is a big plus. Um, so hope this helps. Uh, praying for you guys. Uh, I pray for y'all's ministries as we uh, continue to shape and form and encourage uh, the next generation for Christ. Y'all have a great day. All right. Again, that was Drew. Um, and I think I forgot to say he was he's from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but that was his essential. And today um, in our main uh, course of this episode, we will have Andy Gullahorn joining us. And uh, thankfully, uh, Andy has allowed us to use some of his music and uh, through our transition. So as we transition to our technically speaking portion of the podcast with Jason Thacker again, um, we've got this song Teenagers by Andrew Gillahorn. everybody. We are back with Jason Thacker and, and Kurt is with us as well. Uh, continuing our discu- discussion uh, with technology. Um, as I told our listeners last week, Jason, you have a book on artificial intelligence, the age of AI uh, that everyone needs to pick up. And again, just kind of, as you say in the book, and you, you said last week as well, that seems so futuristic. Uh, we can mm-hmm. you know push that off to the side. We don't have to think a whole lot about it, but um, as you say, it's it's already around us and we need to be thinking about it. But I know you also have another book that's forthcoming, I think in August, uh, you said, uh, talking about just this idea of technology and something that you said last time was just the importance to, to slow down as yeah. we engage technology. And I think that's, if I had to kind of summarize my one concern <laughs> about technology, um, it would be that, that we just seem to be early adopters and just kind of uh, as believers, just kind of um, signing up for every new social media platform. And, you know, sometimes that can be okay if we're being discerning and trying to understand certain aspects of the culture, but um, the, the need to also be sl- slow in, in adopting some things. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about how, how do we practically slow down as Christians uh, with all of this flood of technology coming at us all the time? Yeah, well, I'm glad to be back. And last week, we talked a little bit about the nature of technology, that it's not just a tool-based approach, that it's something kind of larger than that. It's almost the culture in which we inhabit. And I think that's kind of way a way into this conversation about slowing down is the nature of technology. Part of its essence is that it's wanting us to go faster, better, stronger, quicker. Everything's about making things easier, more convenient. Um, a really important figure in my life that's been incredibly influential Um, is a guy named Jacques Ellul. He's a Frenchman, and he writes about the nature of technology. The core principle is efficiency, which sounds kind of uh, out there. But when you start to think about, you know, I use the Waze app. I don't know if you guys use the Mm -hmm. Waze app at all. I use, I found myself not just using the Waze app when I travel, but I use it going to the grocery store sometimes or going to work at the office sometimes or taking my kids to school or what have you. Well, why do I do that? I use it because what if there's a wreck ahead? What if I need to be detoured? What if I hit traffic? This is the fastest, the most efficient way. Mm-hmm. And you see how become we become easily kind of addicted to, in some sense, technology. We just incorporate technology into every aspect of our life. And everything's about efficiency. And so that kind of principle of efficiency makes us think, well, if we're going to think wisely and we're going to take a biblical wisdom-based approach to technology – we kind of have to counter that because technology is causing us to go faster and to be more efficient in everything we do. But the Bible is really clear that wisdom is actually slow. It's something that takes time. It's developed over many years. This is really the concept of virtue. Mm -hmm. 
that the Bible talks about is cultivating virtue. It's not a quick decision. It's not an immediate thing, but it's something that happens over a slow period of time. So much so that even the psalmists talk about the glory of old age. Well, in our age, we talk about, you know, the youngest that we want to be younger and fit and all of this. Well, the Bible's talking about something different is that the glory of being old, of having wisdom and care and um, having experience. And so when we talk about the nature of technology, I think one of the things that we can do is to counteract this, this issue of efficiency is to flip that on its head and say, well, I actually need to slow down. And one of the most practical ways we can do that is by asking hard questions. I think one of the things when we talk about technology is we often think that technology is all of these new questions that we don't really have answers to. And we have to figure out what's the biblical or most the wisest approach to them not understanding that those questions we're asking are not really that new. So I always talk about it in light of these aren't technology isn't causing us to ask new questions per se of humanity, but to ask the same age old questions in light of new opportunities. Mm. So at the core of so many of the questions surrounding technology are the same questions we've always dealt with. Not that we dealt with 10 or 20 years ago, but even two or 3,000 or 8,000 years ago. These are the exact same questions um, in terms of, is there a God? And if so, what is he like? What does it mean to be human? Which I actually think is at the core of almost every cultural issue today, not just technology, whether it's sexuality, marriage, et cetera, is what does it mean to be human? And then what? how are we called to live in the world around us? And so that idea of kind of countering the efficiency and the speed of our day and the most convenient is that sometimes the wisest approach is actually inconvenient. It's something that's going to cause us to slow down. There's that friction because in the midst of that friction, we can take time to think. Uh, there was a principal a long time ago from Alan Jacobs who said, you know, he, he wanted to cultivate a give it five minute rule. So instead of responding immediately to someone's email in a fury of rage or anger or that tweet or that Instagram post or that TikTok, wait, you know, to give it five minutes because we are a very emotional creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can just default to say, well, this is the way I feel and I'm just going to ho- go ahead and post it. And sometimes that's actually not the best or the wisest approach. Maybe we need to slow down and think a little bit more about these things and to take a more w- biblical and wise approach. How often that's a, that's a good word. How often, Jason, when you're when you're writing and thinking about these things, do you uh, just in the way that you were talking about the Waze app? Um, how often do you run into like the concern that I am, I am, or we are like just have become completely dependent upon yeah. these technologies um, to the point where we're not sure would we? I mean, obviously, humanity can get along without ways right we've done we did it for years right but just even the idea of that sounds frightening to some people (laughs) like and not just that but all the other technologies yeah uh you know how often do you run into like that uh i guess what's at loggerheads is is like oh this allows me to do something but the other hand like as good of a tool as it is it now i'm dependent upon it i I can't do without it well it may it reminds me of an instagram ad probably because i'm a reader and they Instagram knows this because Instagram knows a lot more about you than you think it does because of, you know, last week we talked a little bit about privacy. Uh, so we don't have to get into that specifically, but I got an ad the other day and it was how to read a hundred books in a year. And it was this new, like almost like audible, but basically they would just read books to you. 
And it was like, look at all this time you're going to save because instead of reading books, you can actually just listen to them. And I, I love audiobooks. I don't ever say that I read an audiobook because I think that's funny to say, um, but I do listen to all of them. And sometimes I'm, this is the most inefficient way is I actually not only get the audible book or the digital e or the audio book, but I also get the print book. <laughs> and so I'm paying double for my book sometimes, <laughs> but I do that because I like to highlight. I like to underline, I like to mark and flag things. Um, but I say all that to say is it's funny to me that everything about our life is always about what makes faster or stronger, quicker, more efficient. And so I see that often in these kind of conversations is we lose the ability to do certain things. So while we gain uh, opportunities, maybe we gain certain new abilities. We also see others atrophy or become weak because we're not using them. And I see this, especially with reading um, is often people, you know, aren't reading. And when they, the idea of picking up a book is kind of overwhelming and like, Hey, is there like a spark notes to this that's what it was really popular when i was a teenager especially in high school is go get the spark notes for this book because you're you're probably not going to want to invest the time to actually read it so go read this other thing that's a lot shorter and now it's just quick summary or just give me the you know the too long didn't read um type of version give me the tweet instead of the article and so that idea of almost kind of dumbing down things and we lose the ability and we lose certain abilities so somebody said the other uh, a long time ago with ways is you know there's places that i probably don't even know the name of the roads if you took my phone away i might not be able to, i could probably get you there because mentally i remember where you turn but i have no idea what the road's called because I just never had, I never needed to pay attention. I never needed that because I was dependent upon my tech to tell me, Hey, turn right in 500 feet type of thing. And, and so it's, I don't want to come across as super anti-tech because I'm not, I'm actually a tech optimist. I think technology can be used for good, but we have to realize that it's kind of a double-edged sword. There is lots of good benefits to it, but there's also some negative things to it. And we have to take both of those if we're going to take a more wisdom, biblical approach to these. Yeah. Things. And you, yeah. you open yourself up to the criticism that you're against technology and you kind of sound like the old man. Well, back in my day, you know what I mean? We had to do, I mean, I, even as you're talking about that, like I still have the phone numbers of my friends in high school memorized. Like they're oh, still yeah. there. I, I don't think anyone in my youth group knows anyone else's phone number just offhand. Um, yeah. You know, why would they? Right. And not that that's like necessarily a skill that it, that's something that is atrophied. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing that is atrophied, but you run into that, you run into that problem where it's like, are you just nostalgic for the time when you were in charge yeah. and things were the way they used to, or are we really losing something? Right. Yeah. And I, we've I, always, and that's the nature of technology. And that's why we have to stop thinking about it as just digital technology is that this has really been the conversation that we've always had. There's always been a generation before us that didn't have this technology and maybe overly critical of it. And that's why I don't want to say all technology is good, nor do I want to say all technology is bad is that it's kind of both and. And so somebody said, um, I remember they say technology is not neutral, uh, but it's also, it's also, it's good and bad, but at the same time, it's not moral. Like there's, it's very complicated. It's not something that's super easy. You know, you can just put up on a poster and, oh, this is what technology is. This little kind of trite line is that it's really complicated. And that's where we, I advocate for more of a wisdom approach. That's what I argue in my next book uh, called Following Jesus in the Digital Age is all about cultivating wisdom and virtue and the way that we approach these tools, because this is the life, this is the time that God has 
called us to. He's, he's made us to live in the age around us, not to isolate ourselves from culture, but not to open, kind of overly adopt everything uncritically is that we take a very critical, a very balanced, a very wisdom and biblical approach to live in the world that God has created and realize technology can be used for good, but it also can be used for evil. And we have to take more of a a winsome and kind of discerning approach to these tools. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Kurt, I know we're about to close out before too long, but did you have something else you wanted to ask? Okay. Um, well, listen, uh, we, we can close out uh, for this week, but I do want to remind our, our listeners as well. I mean, just as we're having this conversation, um, we would all affirm uh, the pros of technology. Uh, I mean, as we have these little 10 to 15 minute segments, we're, we're going to be voicing concerns. We're going to try to foster discernment by, by some of what we're asking. But I mean, throughout your, your first book, The Age of AI, I mean, you talk about all of the positive benefits of, of technology and the, the good of technology. And really, as we've said plenty of times on this podcast, as believers, we must be pro-technology, um, that we are commanded to advance uh, technolog- technologically speaking, um, because we're created to do so. As we look at you know, Genesis 1, 28, uh, God uh, telling us to exercise dominion over creation. So none of us would say, um, you know, we're anti-technology, um, but we just want to foster discernment with that. But as we're closing this out, any kind of last word on kind of some of the good of technology there, Jason? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things is when people are super anti-technology, I kind of want to push back on them and say, do you may not realize how beneficial technology is. I mean, just think of medical technologies and the ability to cure cancer or to rid someone. I mean, my wife was diagnosed a couple of years ago with cancer um, and chemotherapy treatments and a stem cell transplant to the day where she's cancer free as of right now. We're praising God for that. Years ago, she wouldn't have made it. So we can't be like this idea of like, we're just anti-technology because we it's super beneficial, not only in the medical expense, but even like uh, technology in terms of Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Instagram um, or Facebook, even the ability to have a podcast like this, to be able to equip youth workers and equip youth uh, people uh, working with youth and uh, equip the larger church to be talking about these things is we're benefiting so much from technology. So I think it's a really um, kind of shallow view just to say, well, technology is all bad or it's all good. It's really neither of those things. It's something that's a lot more, we have to take a very balanced and biblical approach and understand what it really is and then how God's called us to use it, which is the core of Christian ethics. That's why I study ethics. I'll often we think ethics is something weird and out there, um, not something really connected to our lives, but ethics is discipleship. It's the way of the Christian life. Every decision we make is ethical in nature in some sense. Um, and so really we have to formulate our entire life around what Christ called us to the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. That's the core, not only of the biblical message, but really the core of the Christian ethic. Thanks for that, Jason. Looking forward to talking more with you next week as we close out um, Technically Speaking with Jason. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. with shiny things And the pressure of keeping up our rising They'll tell you something's missing Try
All right, that was Andy Gillahorn's song, Small Things. That's a live recording from the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Uh, we're very glad to have Andy join us today. He will be talking a little bit about that song uh, later in the episode. Uh, but for now, here's my inter- interview with Andy. Andy, why, why don't you tell us a little bit, bit about your family um, and also tell our listeners uh, about your wife's newest album. I think just at the time of this recording released yesterday. So be sure to tell us about that as well. Yeah, I'm married. Um, well, my wife, Jill, we met first day of uh, class at Belmont University in college, and we got married right out of college. And um, I've been doing music together ever since, pretty much. And uh, we have three kids. My oldest is a 20-year-old, just turned 20, just graduated from the teenage years. Um, he's at University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And then I have a 17-year-old daughter who's a senior in high school. Uh, this weekend, we're doing kind of the last round of college trips. And then I have my youngest son is a freshman in high school. He's 14 years old. And we live here in Nashville. And you mentioned Jill's record. She did a um, – she's done – I don't know how many records she's done now. Many. But years ago, she went back to – grad school uh, to get a master's in marriage family uh, therapy. So she's been doing that and writing songs for this record. And so it's, it's a really beautiful record that's kind of, um, I mean, her songs have always had uh, pieces of healing in them. Um, but this one's called Deeper Into Love. And it's just like a, a real, it's almost like a therapist wrote the record. Actually, she did. Uh, we wrote some songs together. She wrote some with, with our friend Ben Shive. Um, but yeah, it just came out on Valentine's Day. All right. And I think I saw somewhere you said to listen to it three times a day and you'll you'll be a better person or you'll feel better or something like that. That's a prescription. You know, you could take it, <laughs> but I, I recommend taking it with, a you know, don't do it on an empty stomach. It's important. It's important to uh, l- take it with your meal. Listen with ev- every meal. Sure. You can listen to it more. It's not going to like, but don't do it less because then all sorts of bad things will happen. Yeah. Well, that's, that's some good advice. Um, but yeah, so, so people can check that out. Spotify, anywhere else. Yeah. It's all Spotify, Apple music, uh, Amazon, you know, wherever, all those places. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Jill Phillips and the, the CD is, or I guess it's not called CD anymore, whatever, but <laughs> title of the cassette is deeper into love. Yeah, <laughs> they can get the eight track as well. Um, mm-hmm. Great, Andy. Um, look, many people know you as a singer songwriter who lives in Nashville, as you just said. But you know, only a few people know Andy, the the teenager. Um, so I'd love for you to tell us about your your teen years and and how would those around you, those family and friends, describe what kind of a teenager you were? Well, I. I we'll have to preface any conversation about my teen years uh, with the fact that I have a really horrible memory. And I'll start with this story to show you how horrible of a memory <laughs> I have. Um, I, around the time of the 15 year, or I think it was the 15 year high school reunion or 10 year or some sometime, I went to a very small high school and I was talking with a couple of the friends and I'm like, Hey, how come we're not having a reunion? Like, isn't it about time to have a reunion? And they're like, yeah, nobody's planned it. And I said, well, who's, who's in charge of that kind of thing? They said, usually it's the senior class president. I said, well, who was the senior class president? And they said, you were the senior class president. And I was like, 
There is no way I was a senior class president. I would want to remember that. And it's not the kind of thing that I would do. And then they pulled out the yearbook and showed me that I was a senior class president. No and I had no clue. So n- none of the stories I would tell you are reliable because I don't really remember um, <laughs> a whole lot of details. And it's not because, you know, I was a stoner or something like that. I wasn't. I was like the good kid. I know that. Um, I went to a, a Catholic schools all the way through high school. And I was basically a middle child. I had um, a brother who's like three years older than me and then another brother who's a year and a half younger. So I was kind of the middle child there. And then we adopted my, our sister later. Um, and so I was kind of like um, my role was always to be the good uh, Christian kid. Um, and, you know, I think there are things that are good about that. Um, but, you know, sometimes when I look back on that kind of a role and when I hear other people in their healing journeys talk about um, that kind of a role, it it has all troubles of its own. You know, it just it, it like it breeds uh, like a lot of shame and kind of hiding. Um, but also, it's kind of, I think it kind of breeds a lack of memory, like like you're just just trying to like. Um, always trying to course correct yourself constantly um, and then trying to like minimize any ways that you, you fail um, or hide them, uh, I think contributes to, um, well, that's my theory contributes to not having a really great memory. You're trying, you're trying to, you're trying to, to cover over any way that you weren't perfect, you know? Well, that's interesting. So, so when you're saying kind of, loss of memory are you saying kind of from the pressures of trying to be at all and do all of these things you're just constantly churning and, and doing all of this stuff to kind of keep that perfect path ahead of you and that's just kind of leads to the exhaustion and lack, lack of memory is that what you're saying yeah kind of if, if if you would take it, it's i mean this is all theoretical maybe i just have sure. a really bad brain you know who knows uh, i'm trying to find something to blame it on <laughs> um but um it's it's almost like if if I if I felt like being angry or mean to somebody and I was like, no, you can't feel that way. It's just like constant minimization of the way that I actually feel. I don't think it would be right to be mean or whatever to somebody. But like what that what that bled out to is like if I felt angry or if I felt excited about something, it's like it's always minimizing whatever that is so that it's like it always stays pretty peaceful. Um and so in a, in a sense, in the moment, there's a kind of forgetting that's happening. Um, this is weird. This is weird that that's the way I let off talking about my teenage years. That's not exactly uh, who, well, <laughs> just all of who I, who I am, but that's kind of where it started today. Well, maybe it's weird that it's resonating with me as well. I don't know if it's just because we're in similar kind of life stages. Um, but I mean, lack of memory could just be the fact that we have children and I feel like I cannot yeah. remember my, my children's, my children's names half the time and get them, get them wrong. So, um, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, and just a minute ago, you, you mentioned a yearbook and we know in most yearbooks, uh, we find a list of most athletic, most likely to succeed, most courteous class clown, all of these others. And you might've just answered this, but which category would it best describe you? Well, in my in the actual yearbook, there were two superlatives for me. One was 
that I was the most likely to win a Grammy. It was a pretty low bar. There weren't like other people. It was like 47 people in my graduating class. And, and I had just started like writing songs and stuff. And so it was kind of like, there weren't a whole lot of people who were pursuing musical stuff uh, then. So, I mean, most likely, yeah, sure. But you know, that hasn't happened. Um, <laughs> and the other one was uh, most likely to become a priest. That also did not happen. So I failed both of them. Uh, but uh, so that's kind of, I mean, I got along with uh, a lot of people. I, I felt like everybody, I mean, like I had a lot of friends and I played, um, I played basketball through high school. So sports was really important to me. Uh, I wanted to be in the NBA. And then when I like sophomore year of high school is kind of when I started playing guitar and writing songs. And that kind of slowly, the, the energy and interest in that slowly took over uh, the energy and interest I was spending and, and time I was spending playing basketball. So maybe if I didn't write songs, I would have been in the NBA, but you know, who, who knows? No, nobody will ever know. <laughs> well, what would your uh, teachers have said about you? How, how would they have described what kind of a student you were? Um, I think they would have said I was a, a, a I was interested in being a good student, but not more interested in being a good student than like the social aspects of school. Um, so I would do whatever I, it took to get A's, but I was, I was not an overachiever. Hmm. I think that's probably about right. Uh, I didn't, and this is the way all the way through college too, where I wasn't, um, I was never a big reader. So I just would pay attention in class and try to like, you know, gather all the information I could, and then I could do well enough on the tests to, to get by. So I kind of like, um, in college, I, I was in an honors program with Jill, my wife, and like 15 other people. And I still didn't read any of the books. So even now, like some people talk about a classic piece of literature. And I'm like, Jill, did we read that or discuss it? Because you know, <laughs> she read the book, and then I would listen to the discussion, and, and she'd get mad because we got the same grade. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could imagine that that's pretty annoying. See, I, I was, I, I never read, but I was a poor listener as well. So it's kind of a miracle that I made it through. Um, <laughs> that's college. a good combo. Yeah, it's a good combo. <laughs> um, look, and you, you um, have, before I ask this question, you've mentioned that you were you know, pretty athletic and you were into um, basketball. Is this correct that I've heard that you organized competitions while you're on tour? Uh, traveling with other musicians. Is that correct? I do. I mean, yes. On on a lot of the tours I've been on, um, I mean, there's a pretty low bar for athleticism when it comes to musicians. So it's, it's, I just happen to like uh, playing games and doing competitive things. So there are a lot of tours where I, I kind of organize some sort of uh, tournament of champions or, you know, have different games throughout the day. There's a Christmas tour I've been a part of for the last 20 years. And I'm kind of officially the PE teacher of that tour, <laughs> where I kind of have some some activity uh, every day if we can. Do you have the whistle and the headband? And I did. Uh, there was one year, I mean, early on, I, I, I got a mesh bag. I filled with balls and cones and stuff. And I, I did have a whistle. Um, I don't know what happened to it. I haven't used the whistle in a long time. Um, but yeah, it was full on 
there's one year we, we even had uniforms. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God is the name of the tour. So we had some uh, PE shirts with our names on the back. That was that was the height of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So, so along those lines, what, what were some of those extracurriculars you were involved in in high school? I know you've mentioned basketball, but then also some extracurriculars you wish you would have been involved in in high school. Hmm. Well, um, this is where my memory is going to fail me. You can I mean, make stuff was, up. Nobody's going to know. So. Okay. Uh, I was a, the weightlifting president. No, I'm just kidding. I never did that. Um, I mean, sports wise, you know, I would do cross country just to get in shape for basketball. And then, then like senior year, what well, sophomore year, I tried out for the baseball team. Cause the baseball team was all whining about how hard baseball was. I was like, baseball is like, the, it's not even a sport. I mean, so I went just so that I could see what it was like. And I was like, yeah, this is not easy to play, but like they're, you'd get in trouble and you'd have to run to center field and back. I'm like, that's not a punishment. You guys are so lazy. So I did that just to prove a point. I played <laughs> tennis doubles tennis my senior year after basketball season was over with my best friend in high school. And it was a lot of fun. Um, we just loved it. Um, um, I know I was like the president of the Latin club. That's like as nerdy as you get. Um, but that was totally just for college applications. I'm sure. Hmm. Well, look, we, we all know that a major milestone of teenagers is uh, getting their own driver's license. Mm -hmm. um, what do you remember about getting your license, learning to drive? And I know we've already established the memory might not be the best, but <laughs> do you remember any of those early learning to drive a car, getting behind the wheel of a car? I don't remember the getting the license part, but living out in the country, uh, it's outside of Austin, Texas. And um I think from when I was about 14, I would already take the pickup truck and drive, you know, 10, 15 miles on country roads to a feed store or something like that. So by the time I could drive legally, I'd already been driving for a couple of years um, out, you know, country roads. So I don't remember much about the technical time when I was allowed to do it. I do remember that my dad, before the driving test, we had our own driving tests out on the farm where you had to, it's an old stick shift truck and we put a trailer on it and you had to be able to back up the trailer. And it was like, you know, you're on a hill and it's like right by a tree and you have to like start up the hill without rolling backwards, all that kind of stuff. We had it, we had to pass that test before I went and took the actual. So by the time I do remember the actual driving test, having to parallel park a suburban, uh, which was, which was, I mean, at that point it was fine, but I was grateful for all my, all my training. Um, and the only th other thing I remember about driving in high school is like, it was dangerous. Cause I went to call, I mean, high school, like 45 minutes away from where I live. And, um, so like, and some girls I dated like lived over near the high school. So like if, if I was hanging out with them or on a date or something like that, I was driving back late at night and just like, I'm sure I was just falling asleep all the time uh -huh. driving home. It's horrible. Um, it's, it scares me to death, which is kind of why we live in the city now where everything's a mile away. There you go. Do you remember your first car? Um, the first one that I, that was like mine. Yeah, I totally remember it. Uh, it was a Chevy Silverado pickup truck. Um, did, did it have a cassette player in it? 
Of course, I had a cassette player. Okay. And what would you have been listening to back, back then? Ooh, I mean, all country music. Um, maybe it also had, uh, I put in like a, I think I had a six CD changer that where the CD thing was underneath the, oh, yeah. underneath the seat of my pickup truck. So I had to get out of the car to change the CDs, but like in high school, I listened to a lot of Allison Krauss, um, a lot of country music, uh, John Gorka, some folk music, um, the cassette that I remember always being in my truck was Steve Earle hmm. for some reason. That was, that was always in the pickup truck. Isn't it funny? I can remember, I mean, as you're describing that CD changer, I, I can remember just seeing people pull up with that and it was like, Oh man, that's amazing. You can have six CDs in there. Oh, it's crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, any bumper stickers on the car? Were you a bumper sticker guy? I don't. Interesting question. I, I would not have been a, a, a typical bumper sticker guy, but so not like a rectangular bumper sticker on the bumper. It's possible there's like one or two like small circular things in the back corner of a window of the pickup truck. And that would have been, uh, if I'm remembering right, it was probably the Texas trophy hunter. So it's like a big uh, deer. Uh, Antlers, Texas Trophy, something like that. Um, that's probably the only sticker I had on my car. All right. Um, yeah. what, what about what about posters on your wall in your room? For sure, uh, there there was a season where my room would have been completely covered uh, by Michael Jordan posters, pretty much. Mm. I remember there's like one Dominique Wilkins poster in there, but it's all basketball stuff. Mm -hmm. All uh, that that would have been the decoration. I don't know if that was high school. Um, yeah, and it, then like Garth Brooks kind of invaded some of the, the Michael Jordan space for some reason. That there, I know I had some Garth Brooks posters, but uh, these are interesting questions. I haven't thought about this in a very long time. <laughs> hey, and your memory is better than you than you thought. So I still yeah, have all the Michael Jordan posters the here oh. in the house. I put them up in my son's room. They're, they're pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, look uh, along those lines too. Just um, who are some of those early role models in your life? This could be you know a family member, friend. This could be celebrities, sports stars, whoever. Well, my parents definitely were. Um, and when I think about, uh, well, I hate saying this because who knows, maybe I'm just forgetting something, but like having like older men, older people in my life that kind of were like mentors to me, not a whole lot comes to mind during that time. I can remember uh, uh, senior year of high school. I, I know that I loved my basketball coach. We had a new basketball coach, an old guy who kind of, came out of retirement uh, to coach basketball at our high school because we had a horrible coach the year before. Um, I, I believe his name is Coach Beck. And his. Uh, I also think he played a, in high school against Oscar Robertson and outscored him. That's that's one thing that I remember. Um, well, and yeah. uh, you talk, talked a little bit about church and kind of youth ministry. Um, uh, yeah, 
just describe that a little bit more for us. What was that like for you? Were, were you going to a youth ministry at your Catholic church or did you go with friends to another church? No, they had, um, I mean, they would have like a youth group kind of thing maybe every week, but that's not something that, I mean, we live so far away from the church too. They're like 30 minutes away from the church. So it wasn't like we would be going back and forth to that. But also in the Catholic church is different where, I mean, I can make fun of Catholic church for their lack of, of youth group. Um, but also one thing that I love about it is that the, the, um, you could go into the, to the mass every Sunday and be annoyed by all the kids climbing around and the babies crying and all that kind of stuff. Like, Oh, you know, a lot of the churches I went to in college that weren't Catholic, they, they, they have like the, the nursery and, and all the programs on Sunday morning where the kids are occupied and the, the adults are in there for the teaching time. Um, but I love that kind of one of the things about the Catholic church, at least the one that I went to was that, uh, the, mass and the eucharist the whole service was for everybody so it wasn't um you know something that everybody could participate in so that's why you know i don't i don't think it was necessarily bad that there wasn't a uh big youth group happening uh i felt i always felt like i was part of the church and that being said i was very involved in, in a kind of a sports campus more evangelical sports camp i went all in the summers all growing up and then I worked there for a number of years. Um, and so that was kind of like, I would go there and get kind of like the evangelical fix where, you know, every summer they'd ask me, Oh, you're Catholic. Do you know what day you were saved? And I was like, nah, no, I've just, and they're like, well, do you know you're not going to hell? So then I would, you know, dedicate my life again that year so that I could have a date that I could give them. Um, and I also remember my mom taking a group of us Catholic kids, uh to go see um josh mcdowell that's his name evidence um, of demands a verdict i believe probably i don't i, don't, I mean it, it was at hyde park hyde park baptist church they were our rivals the you know the catholic and then playing the baptist all the time so we went over there for that and and i can just remember you know so so the evangelical language wasn't foreign to me um but i can just remember he was doing a hard sell for an altar call and all his Catholics were just sitting there like, yeah, we're, we're not, I mean, and he just kept going. And finally we're just like, guys, if we don't go up there, this is going to go on all day long. So, uh, I, I remember that. Um, but yeah, it's kind of, I, I think my mom was that way too. She grew up Catholic, but, um, it was never, uh, there's always an openness to other traditions. It's very ecumenical. Um, so I was exposed to all kinds of things uh, and, and kind of grew up just feeling like, oh, I should feel at home in any house of God that I go to. So that's kind of grateful for that. Mm. Like if you could take um, teenage Andy out for a cup of coffee, um, what, what's something that you'd like to tell him or maybe just say a truth that you think teenage Andy needed to hear back then? I don't know. It, it, that's one of those questions that's so hard because, you know, like I wish I could go back and say, hey, you know, like it's okay to screw up uh, or not just that it's okay to screw, screw up, but it's okay for people to know that you screw up, you know. Um, but as a teenager, you know, like 
if there was somebody in my life who said that to me, I, 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 I wouldn't have understood it, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, it would be somewhere along those lines. Like, mm -hmm. like you, it, there's also this, this part, um, where I felt like, and this was developed over that time. I mean, kind of the whole life, like where I started to believe that it was my job, not save people, but, um, but maybe I, I don't just mean like, uh, salvation. I mean, I mean like, well that too, but I mean, I was voted most likely to be a priest. Like it was my job to be the spiritual, uh, person who's going to, if somebody's going through a hard time, it's my job to help them, uh, get out of a hard time. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with ways that I was made to do that. Um, but I think I really felt like that's what my, um, what my job was. I didn't have a very clear sense of kind of boundaries around like, uh, well, this is what, how to help somebody and not get enmeshed in it, I guess. Mm. Um, I kind of always felt like, uh, it was my job. If, if there's somebody hurting, then it's my job to help them find uh, what they need. And like I said, there's not something horribly wrong about that. It's just when it's really not my job. It's like, I can, I can do what I can, but it, it's taken me years. Did, did you find that um, your friends would often come up to you for advice and counsel about whatever was going on in their, their lives? Were, were you the one they kind of looked to, to, to help them? Um, I know that happened some, I would imagine if some of my friends from high school are listening to this, they'd be like, no, you weren't that. Uh, <laughs> and maybe, and maybe that's true. And maybe that was just more uh, later in life. Um, but I was kind of like, I was a friend to everybody, but also felt kind of separate because I was like the one who wasn't drinking, who wasn't doing all this stuff. And so like, so then I wouldn't like go to a bunch of parties. But then when I would go to a bunch of parties, you know, people would talk to me and be like, oh man, I'm, you know, I wish I wasn't doing this or, you know, they, they would kind of either in a drunken state uh, or whatever, be like telling me their woes for, for the way they were living. And I'm like, Oh, well, there's another way, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, um, yeah, so it, it, it kind of created this, uh, separation of like, there's me and then there's people that need to be helped. And, and it's not that I had all my stuff together. It's just that like, whatever was going on with me didn't matter. It was, it was going to be superseded by whatever I would perceive. Mm -hmm. um, that's also painting me out to be more of an empathetic and generous person than I probably actually was in high school, but that's, you know, looking back on it. And I don't think any of my high school friends are going to listen to this anyway. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. They, they, I think they tune in that they're pretty avid. I'm not, it's, I'm not saying anything about your podcast. No, I'm, I'm just, just saying like they, they saw me on <laughs> there like, yeah, I'm not listening. You know, whatever. <laughs> Well, look, if you had to look back on um, maybe a significant childhood event that the Lord used to shape you, just kind of looking back over your life, this could have been teenage years, it could have been before that. Uh, what what comes to mind about just a significant childhood event? Like musically for me, 
I was always musical from a very young age and played piano and that kind of thing. And, and then, like I said, I, I gave it up to start training to be in the NBA. And, um, and then I w- then it turns out I wasn't that good at basketball. Um, but also in, I think it was my freshman year um, in high school, I was a huge Garth Brooks fan. I just, I love the songs that he picked and I just kind of, you know, we talked earlier about listening to music. I would just sit and listen to his records and all those old country records. I, I just, I would sit and read the lyrics and see who the writers were. And I just think Garth Brooks picked some really great songs early on. And um, whoever I, I was into musically, kind of my, the rest of my family kind of got into as well. And so the whole family turned into big Garth Brooks fans. And we went to a concert it was a benefit for Austin city limits. And uh, my little brother was up in the front row yelling out requests. And at some point in the show, Garth called him up and he said, Hey buddy, there's for whatever reason, I think you should have this guitar. So he gave his guitar from my little brother. It was the first guitar Garth ever gave away. No way. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, went back and met him and all that kind of stuff. And then um, it was a pretty valuable guitar and then it was, you know, he's inducted into the grand old, Opry with that guitar and it was in his first couple of videos I think um and my mom was just kind of like well I, I think God gave us this guitar so that it would be played we're not, we're not gonna like put it in a museum or something like that so my brother got some guitar lessons and it didn't really take and I was like well can I try it and, and I started playing on that guitar and it really I mean I had all the a musical background that I kind of stopped when I was about 12 so picked up that guitar when I was 14 or 15 and, and then just kind of took off and started um, just learning how to play guitar really quickly. And then started, you know, playing a bunch of cover songs and then realized I could write my own song. So I was writing country songs and, and that really kind of that event, that's definitely an event that, that changed the trajectory of my life um, and kind of like, kick-started uh, the love affair with uh, playing guitar and writing songs. And uh, I mean, maybe it would have happened another way, but that was a, a pretty dramatic way to start, I think. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and you, you still have that guitar? It's in my parents' house. Oh, I mean, it's my brother's guitar. It's his, but, you know, it, it says, you know, it has his name on the front that Garth signed it to. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just played it last time I was uh, home over New Year's. Wow. Um, my next question was going to be, when, when did you first sense that you wanted to be a musician? So am I hearing you correctly? Okay. Around the age of 12, you were kind of thinking about it. And then this guitar came along 14. Is that help me on the, the timeline here when you first? Yeah. So I would have been like a piano player from three till 12 years old. And then I quit when I was 12 and then just kind of wasn't as interested in music until, uh, that guitar came to our life, like 14 or 15 years old, whatever freshman year of high school. And, um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where it really took off. And it was, it was just me playing, you know, guitar by myself at, at home and then writing songs. And then uh, after that, I started writing a bunch of country songs. And then I was introduced to the music of David Wilcox, who's a, a folk singer songwriter. Um, that would have been sophomore year maybe, or 
sophomore, junior year. And that changed my life in another way. It's kind of like, okay, I was writing these country songs, but there's something about the way that David wrote songs that he was a great storyteller like they were in country music, but it wasn't country music. And it was, there was like a healing aspect to it. It was like what he was shooting for was that to move somebody from one place to another place internally through the course of a song uh, and that they might be changed, you know, by the song. And somehow I picked that up uh, just from listening to his music. And I remember thinking, wow, that's, it's one thing to be able to tell a story, which I think is a really hard thing to do in a song. And I, and I, and I really appreciate. Uh, and it's another thing to do it with a purpose, uh, a healing purpose. And, and that kind of, um, that was definitely inspiring to me. It kind of made me want to copy him the rest of my life, which is what I've been mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, and I'm, ignorant to try to speak on uh music um so you can feel free to correct me but but it seems like in many of your lyrics there's there's a there's a twist um and it, it kind of you think i mean at least for me you're headed in one direction and then you you do kind of turn it on the uh, the listener at times is that where you picked up some of that and is that um I, again what, what as you said you've been trying to do through your your songwriting um what would he have been one of your early inspirations there? He would, but also a lot of the country songwriters, uh, some of the twist part uh, is just a common, uh, you know, thing in country music where, you know, you, you try to have, um, you know, if you take a song like He Stopped Loving Her Today, George Jones sang, it's kind of like, so you have, you know, you sing it in the chorus and it means one thing, you sing it, the second chorus, it still kind of means that thing. You sing it at the end it's like, oh, he stopped loving her because he's dead. Okay, so so like it's like finding ways to say the same thing, but it means something different by the end of the song. Mm -hmm. And just that very uh, structure, I think, says that hey, we're trying to like move you from one place to another in the course of a song. So so I mean, David Wilcox definitely does a great job of that. There are a lot of folk singer songwriters, Pierce Pettis and John Gorka uh that really influenced me in that way as well um but yeah for me it's just i'm i'm kind of a mathematical person so i kind of like the idea of setting up the structure um and you set up the structure so people can feel comfortable in it and then uh then if you change it in the song um i just think it's an easier pill to swallow that way um at least it is for me what's the best part about being a musician and what's the worst part um, if you want to start with the negative first, um, and end with the positive. I, there aren't a lot of bad parts to it. I, I would feel like I'm like whining about having to be a musician for a living. <laughs> um, but I will say maybe what I would put in the category of one of the worst parts is that in order to kind of like in the, in kind of the way that the industry is now, like that, that it's moved to the streaming and social media so big, like so much of the work of being a singer songwriter musician has nothing to do with writing songs or or music mm -hmm. it's just like oh i need to post this again i need to do you know like whatever i love the the community aspect of it i love playing songs for people i love connecting with people um that is so fun for me but in order to make that happen there's they're just it seems like there are more and more things to do that have nothing to do with the part of it that i that mm -hmm. i love um, but they kind of facilitate, they kind of make it possible to happen. So, you know, I'll do it. 
Um, but I, I'd say that's kind of the, I would find myself getting in, when I get in the mode of like, oh, I need to post more stuff on YouTube. I need to do this. And I, I need, then, then when I get in that vortex, then it kind of takes out any kind of creativity from me. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to go back and forth and be business minded and then, you know, think, oh, I need to write a song now. It's, it, it's, there's something about being on social media that feels like it saps out all creative energy from me. Um, does that make any sense? That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, and then um, so the best part would be the community aspect, being up performing in front of others, I think you said. Yeah, I think there's there's an honor that comes with, like in, in trying to play songs that connect with people, if people do feel connected to it, there really is an honor in people coming and feeling like they're connected to you and sharing things about their lives. And then like, you know, many friends that I've made over the last 20 years uh, who've come to shows and, you know, my music, I want to, I'm trying to tell everybody that we're all in this together. We're all the same. So it's not like, Oh, here's somebody on stage. It's, it's I'm separate from the people who are, who are listening. Um, so yeah, that community aspect, uh, I, I love that part. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I, I did want to talk to you just a little bit about your song, small things. Um, okay. many people know it as, you know, the high five story. Um, and just for our listeners, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. Yeah. You can see it on, I think CBS Sunday mornings, there's a little clip and then the Atlantic did, um, an article. Uh, and first off too, just, can you get us an update on Gabe? Is he doing okay? I know he's the high five friend in the story in the song. Yeah, no, Gabe, Gabe's doing well. We just did the high five yesterday. We're coming up on, it'll be eight years in April of every week walking to give each other a high five. Um, but we did our normal Monday routine of high five and playing badminton together. Um, but uh, he's doing well. I mean, like most people would never know that anything was wrong with him there, that he like just about lost all of his memory a year and a half ago. Um, but it's still like, I think all, all the struggles that he has are uh, most people would never see. It's just, he, mm-hmm. he, he does a lot to, uh, to try to stay on top of his short-term memory. And there's just a lot of experiences and memories from the past that he, he might not ever remember again, but um, you know, he, as far as relationally and day to day, he's, he, he feels very normal. And, and so you said for eight years weekly, um, mm-hmm. like, rain snow uh i mean if it's raining on a monday you guys are still walking through the rain giving each other a high yeah five? yeah or we or we'll pick a different day that week okay. <laughs> if, yeah. we, if we don't want to walk through if it's, if it's raining really hard we you know we'll say hey let's let's walk tomorrow uh but yeah finding a time you know sometime in in the in the week to give each other a high five to walk and give each other a high five uh yeah coming up on eight years that's amazing. Cause I hear that and I'm thinking, okay, are there ever, are there ever those weeks where you're just like, look, I love my friend Gabe, but I just do not feel like getting out and getting, giving him a high five. Do you, do you have those moments? It brings so much joy to me. I wouldn't have those moments. Uh, there have been, I mean, there've definitely been times where we're both out of town, like, and we've missed weeks cause we're, you know, this impossible for us to sure. give each other a five. Um, and there were times where, 
uh, it started early on when it was kind of like we didn't have time to hang out. Like the, it was a really busy week and we were like, hey, I don't think we can have the 30 minutes of walking and then talk and play badminton or shoot baskets or whatever. Like we don't have time for it. And we started doing the something called the silent high five, which is where we would just walk the mile, well, three quarters of a mile. And then we wouldn't even talk to each other or look at each other. We'd pass each other, go like 10 or 20 paces, turn around, and then still not look at each other and just give each other a high five and then keep walking back home and not talk to each other all day long, hmm. which is, it's, it feels kind of stupid, but um, <laughs> it was a really, every time we've done it, it was a really powerful experience. I mean, like just that, it was like, hey, yeah, it's really busy, but we're, I'm still going to take 30 minutes out of my week. And even if we don't get to talk and connect and have fun and goof off, um, we're going to show each other that we're still dedicated to, to being friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it, it never feels like a chore. Hmm. Um, I'll say that. Well, and I mean, you're getting close to 10 years and I think that's the original goal you guys set out. What's the, what's the plan for the 10 year? Have you guys even talked about that? If you make it to a decade of doing this? Um, I mean, yeah, we kind of jokingly said at the beginning that if we did it for 10 years, that's, that's the kind of story that they, they would do on CBS Sunday morning. And then they ended up doing a story after seven years. So it's kind of like, oh, we're, we're goal. We have no goals anymore. But I mean, really we started doing like last year we had, uh, on the anniversary had a lot of people gather and we just did a big group high five. I think they were probably like 50 people or something like that. So we split in two groups and we walked, had a little mile thing and we met back in the middle outside of the restaurant that Gabe opened Lady Bird Taco here in Nashville. And um, then we all went and had tacos together. Um, so we'll probably, we'll probably keep doing that kind of stuff on the anniversaries. We've, we've wanted to have like a charity, like 5k kind of thing, but just like, walking the ends and everybody who does it, giving each other a high five, like two different lines, giving a high five and, you know, going to some charity, but like that takes more organization than either, than either one of us is capable <laughs> of. And, and the quarantine has made that hard. Um, so after, I mean, 10 years, maybe we'll do something like that, but really it's like, there's no reason why we would stop at 10 years. And we're, we're just, we'll, we'll probably hopefully be doing this until we die. Uh, which, you know, I mean, the way I've been eating those tacos, it could be soon. You know? <laughs> but look, you, you've also got a song entitled Teenager, um, which uh, those who listen to this podcast, Russell Moore referenced that song on episode 342. So you can go back and hear what Russell Moore was saying about it. But that song, that song makes me laugh and then it makes me cry. And it's just such a, a, a thoughtful song. I was just curious, do you have kids? What do your own children think of that that song when they hear the song Teenager? They, um, I mean, they all have good senses of humor. Um, and so they were, you know, they were fine with it. And I think my oldest is happy to have, to not be a teenager anymore. So, uh, that technically that song isn't about him anymore. (laughs) Um, but they, they would all, I I would tell a story before playing that song at a lot of places and, and they would all have, you know, they would all say I take a lot of creative liberty with this, with the truth of that story. And I just say they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> but I, I thought actually that teenagers would like 
my teenagers and other people's teenagers would like not like me for playing that song. But most of the reaction from teenagers that I've gotten is like, yeah, so what? You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, that's the way it is. You better learn how to deal with it, boomer. You know, uh, it's, that's kind of, they're not offended by it. They're like, yeah, get over it. Well, I can say my own teenager laughs at it. Um, look, I've got one more question. You've been very generous with your time, but just uh, I'd love for you to give some advice to aspiring musicians um, and, and artists. Um, you, you know, and I don't know if it's advice more to, to parents and to youth workers, because oftentimes it seems like, you know, anyone who's aspiring to be an artist musician can oftentimes that can be discouraged as we'll pursue this other career first. And, you know, that can... Um, you can fall back on that if if it doesn't work out or whatever. So so what's some some advice for those parents, maybe and youth workers who might have some teenagers in their own life that are aspiring to be musicians or just artists in general? Well, I can say, especially in this day and time, you know, like whether it's because of, you know, all the stuff that's going on in the world and the pandemic and all this kind of stuff where anxiety is kind of through the roof and uh, mental health is an even bigger issue. I can't think of many things that are more therapeutic to me than than songwriting or just creating in general. But in my case, it would be songwriting. So I just encourage people to, you know, even more, we need to be, be exploring these kinds of things that will help us be connected to our hearts and to our feelings um, and to just our internal world. For somebody like me, songwriting has been, my primary connection to, to my internal world. Sometimes it's hard for me to just access that outside of writing songs. Um, so I encourage it. And for the, and for the young songwriters and musicians, one thing that I, I say a lot is that um, it's easy to feel like uh, writing songs or doing something creative is like a higher calling than anything else in the world. And it's not that special. Like, like it's not more special than, than anybody else's calling, doing something else. Uh, it's not going to be more special than having it, it's And because of that, it's not, it's not worth like putting ahead of uh, being a good neighbor and a good friend and, and being in community. Um, I think being a good neighbor and a good friend and being in community will make you the best songwriter that you could possibly be. Hmm. Um, and that being said that, it, that, writing songs is not that important. Uh, on the other hand, I also say writing songs can save people's lives. It saved my life. So it's like holding that tension of like, it's really, really important. And it's not like, uh, it shouldn't eclipse, um, being a part of the rest of what life has to offer. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the most confusing advice ever given, but that's, (laughs) that's what it is. I think that's a good word and that's a, that's a good balance there. And I mean, I know the listeners can't see this, but I was nodding, as you said, it can save people's lives. I mean, there have been times just in my own walk where I felt like I could not read God's word. I could not pray, but I could listen to truth being sung to me. Um, So definitely. Yeah. I agree with that. and think there's a good tension and a good balance there. Um, Andy, I'd love for you to tell our listeners how they can keep up with you, how they can listen to your music. Please, um, let us know how. Okay. Real easy. I mean, it's, I mean, if you want to listen to it, it's on iTunes and Spotify, all those kinds of places. You just have to remember what my last name is, which is hard to spell, but gull a horn, G U L L A H O R N. And then it's on, you know, I'm on social media, all that kind of stuff. 
I'll do um, uh, Monday nights, like one Monday night a month. I still do these Gullahorn happy hours on Facebook and Instagram live that kind of started during the pandemic. It's a fun way to connect. Um, and then also another layer of that is I started doing a Patreon uh, page a year ago. And that's really where um, I haven't released a record in the last few years, but Patreon's kind of any new song that I write, I make a video of it and put it up there for the, the Patreon supporters. And we have our own kind of like Zoom uh, Gullahorn happy hours every month. And actually a lot of that is just playing games, which is, I love playing games. So I kind of facilitate games and play music on Zoom. Um, it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of that community aspect that I was talking about before that I love. So, I mean, that's, you know, just people ask ways to support what I do. It's like, oh, just listen to the music. And if you like it, tell a friend about it. And then, then people sometimes bring me out to play shows. And, and I love that. Um, or Patreon is another way to kind of be a little bit more involved in the ongoing uh, stuff. But ultimately, I just say listen to the music. And if you like it, tell somebody that you love about it. Hmm. Yeah, well, well, Andy, thank you so much for your music. Thank you for your, your thoughtful lyrics. And thank you just for being so generous uh, with your time today and, and coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without pay. For the king has opened his banquet hall to the beggar, the outcast, and the slave. For the king has opened his banquet hall to the beggar, the outcast, and